Hello, I'm Jim Mallard, host of The Mallard Report. On The Mallard Report, along with my guest, we will have a conversation where we will share thoughts and opinions. For more information, my bio, past shows, social media links, and so much more, visit mallard.com. M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D dot com. And thanks for listening. I want to welcome everybody to this evening's pro- this evening's program. That's good. <laughs> One of those days. Uh, Schoolofairs.com. Tonight we've got actually David Perodin, who around here is known as Pierogi, but that's a whole other conversation for another time. I think that's a term of endearment, though, because, well, it's a good food, at least. I don't know. How are it you is. <laughs> How are you doing? It is. <laughs> I, am, I am great. I am excited to be back on the Mallory Report. Thank you. You're excited. Well, bring it down a level. I don't want too many people getting excited about being on this program. <laughs> uh, so, School of Errors, the, uh, the, it, it's, it's officially on the market, right? It As is. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's amazing because, uh, you know, people are contacting me, you know, taking pictures of a snapshot of their screen. Hey, you just ordered it. Um, some of the pre-orders. Uh, arrived in libraries across the nation, so people would be in a library, take a picture of the book, and send it to me. So it's fun. It, it really is fun right now with all the hard work to have it actually in people's hands, have them read it, and get back to me. Um, so yeah, a lot of hard work that's paid off. Yeah, I was gonna say it's been a journey to get to this point. Where where's the strangest place that it's turned up so far, though? Uh the strangest besides, besides my desk right now. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it it was today actually um, in Arizona. Somebody um, took a picture of it at their library. It was a new release, and they they thought it would be interesting um, reading because of what's happening right now on a national scene. You know, with with violence. Um, so yeah, took a picture, and so it made its way down to the tumbleweed state. Yes. So I I teased this to you the other day being a little humorous because what was that last Wednesday or Thursday you were at the ball game front out? I was. So give give my listeners a little brief snippet about that because I I know that I've heard you talk about it, but I haven't heard you talk about it since it happened. So I guess what's, what's yours? You know, it's fun. It's fun. So, um, being an author, there are many author events that I'm included in, um, through my publishing house and their publicity team. And one of those happened to be Wade, Stadium in Duluth, Minnesota, home of the Duluth Huskies. It's a minor league baseball team. They have college um, players, and uh, it, it's phenomenal. I've I've attended many games, but I had an uh, an offer from the team to come up and throw up the first pitch on July 31st at Wade Stadium. And uh, so, you know, it was a week ago. I did it. My youngest daughter came out with me. They have an astroturf field, which is kind of fun. She's doing. Um, um, cartwheels all the way out to the pitcher's mound she's a she's a dancer and the crowd is going wild and i get out there and i I throw out the first pitch and i'm thankful and grateful to the catcher because he snagged it off the front of home plate so it didn't fly all the way back to the screen (laughs) and it it made it look like you know it was this this terrific sinker when i was just glad to get it anywhere close to home base so yeah the the crowd, um, you know, gave us a round of applause. They put the video up on YouTube. They gave me the ball and signed it. And, you know, it's, it's a big deal. They were honoring my career work in school safety. And the night before, they had um, fire, EMS, or ambulance, and police that they were honoring. So, you know, it was sequential. I was the next person. And, you know, Duluth, wonderful people in the stadium, just so welcoming. And, and the franchise, Um to, to highlight, you know, my career contributions. And it goes back a little bit. In uh, 2001, I graduated from UW-Superior with my second master's degree in school administration. And that's just a mile away across the, across the harbor over to Wade Stadium. So back then had ties to Wade Stadium. But, yeah, got to uh, dust off the old fastball, the old Chris Go Express. <laughs> and... Uh, the catcher made me look good, so I'm appreciative to that. But yeah, so I, I told David I had a baseball story, and he he's been itching to hear this ever, I have been. ever I since. Have been. And um, 
I was talking to Chris Olson, who's the guy who writes my show notes today, and he's like, so who's on? I told him that you were on, and I said, I've got the the worst uh, baseball story in the human of man to tell tonight. And I briefly summed it up for him, and he went, oh, I can't wait to hear you t- actually tell this, because, I, you know, when you sum something up, it's, it's you know, a lot shorter and leaves out all the details. So a bunch of years ago, I was a PNC Park rat. Like, I went to PNC Park. That's the home of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the, the How was that? 2005. I mean, I live like an hour and a half north, so I, you know, this is astronomical to me now looking at it. I was at the first five games. And I probably went to half their home games that year. Oh, wow. Just because my buddy at work, you know, he would, <laughs> he bought season tickets. They were cheap. He couldn't go a lot because he worked second shift. So I was, you know, I was always scooping up. Yeah. So I'd just go hang out because the, the team was horrible. So you just hang out and watch, you know, a baseball game and talk to people and have a good time. So being a season with a season ticket, you could get in extra early to batting practice. Nice. So I'd always go down and park way, you know, park about a mile away because I wasn't paying twenty dollars for parking. I mean, I'm just being all cheap about this, right? Right. So I get there early, and it's season ticket. You know, I'm in really early because it's with the season ticket holders. And there's this gentleman and his son. Now his son is probably six, seven, eight. He's not a young baby. Okay. You know, he's he's independent. They've both got gloves. And they're both season ticket, you know, he's the season ticket, well, I guess they're both season ticket holders in theory because the kid's with him. And he says, we've been coming down all summer. This was September, right? This is the end of the season. There's only like 10 guys down there. When, in, right. In April, there was a bunch of people there. Now <laughs> there's these 10 guys and this guy, you know, I'm standing there talking to the guy. Right in the corner, the low wall in PNC Park in left field, there's a low wall. So, you know, the guys are out there working out and I'm harassing some of them and, you know, whatever. The, the Diamondbacks are on the field taking batting practice. So he's telling me that his son and him have been coming down and haven't got a ball all, like, all these games, right? And I'm like, they got gloves. And like I said, this, the, num- the number of guys that are, are out here right now is diminished greatly from when it was. Right. <laughs> so I'm standing there and I'm, I'm watching the bat, you know, watching batting and the ball comes. I'm like, oh, I've got a chance at that one. Right. And then I, that story clicked in my head. This guy needs one for his son, right? Right. So I, I, in the corner of my eye, I catch him backing up. And I'm like, oh, that ball isn't going back that far. This ball, you know, it's, it's right it's right, right in your pocket. If you just stand still, it's right in your pocket. Yeah. But he's backing up, and his son is, like, at the, the, get, at the concession team getting nachos. He's just out of dodge. Like, he doesn't want any part of this ball. And, the, you know, I'm like, okay. And I'm watching. You know, the guy's now three feet behind me. I'm like, okay. I call it. I got it. No glove, need I remind you of this. Wow. Smack my hand. I got it. I'm going for it. Flap. Hits my hand. It would have hit off the wall. I mean, it flapped my hand into the wall. <laughs> Big, nasty. It instantly turns red and starts swelling. <laughs> there's laces in my hand. Wow. Right? I pull my hand up. Don't have the ball, though. Oh. And I, and I went, son of a... Well, I'm not going to repeat what I said. You can imagine. Because, I mean, I went for it. I mean... Yeah. Bruises on both sides of my hand because it pushed back into the wall. I'm like... Oh. And, the, and the, I'm looking at the guy like... You're the guy with the glove. You should have been here <laughs> catching this ball, right? I mean, that was that right. was your ball right there. No right. wonder you don't have a ball because you don't know how to use that glove. But I didn't tell him. I didn't say that to him. So I'm like, the ball's just laying there on the warning track. Okay. Right? I'm like, yeah. Ugh. So one of the baseball players turns around and says, you okay? Of course, <laughs> need I remind you, this is the guy I was harassing ruthlessly, right. endlessly right. earlier. And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. Now I I know in the background security game day personnel is getting ready to come because that I mean that made a noise, my hand <laughs> on the wall made a noise that you know is distinctive of getting medical attention. Right. So I know I'm going to get asked here in a second. Guy turns around and he says, "You want the ball?" And I hold my hand up to him, and he 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 comes over. <laughs> He's like, normally being at the vis in the the visiting park, I just turn and throw it right in front of you right now. Yeah. But he's like, you earned that one. Okay. I'm like, yeah. Nice. And he hands it up to me. And I said, thanks, you know. And the poor little kid's like, how about me? Oh. And the next ball went back in. He's like, oh, you should have tried. You got the glove. You should have tried for it. Wow. I'm like, I thought wow. I was pulling the, the jerk move, but now I'm no longer the jerk. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so people ask me, well, who was the ball player, right? You know, I'm like, I do know who the ball player was. Remember J.D. Drew? You know, this cocky, arrogant Boston ball player from the early yeah, sure. 2000s? His little brother, Stephen Drew, was the Oh, player. okay. 
And I'm like, well, I guess the apple didn't far fall from the tree. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so people, then I get, you know, I tell this story to people, you know, because I've got this big bruise on my hand and everybody wants to know where it came from. Nine out of ten people ask me, did you give the kid the ball? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I did not. <laughs> I've got <laughs> I've got a bruise on my hand. I had that bruise for like ten days. Laces and all. No, wow. I did not give. So there's my ultimate worst looking baseball story in the history of men. <laughs> Do I feel bad about it? But see, I wasn't. This was 2005, 2006. I wasn't a father then. Right. So now with that perspective, I might have. But then again, the way he, the father backed up, step up in there yeah. and take it. Yeah. Come on. You got a glove. You got to go for it. Because it was, like I said, it would have hit the wall otherwise if I didn't stick my hand out there to try to get it. <laughs> So not no, but he wasn't going to get it on the bounce. There was no bounce to be had. I stepped off my hand, but he couldn't have got that one. Wow! <laughs> wow! So there you go. There's my really make me look like a bad guy baseball story. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be you that day. <laughs> that day, nope. So security, up. so security came, did come over and ask if I wanted ice, and I said no, but I did walk away with them at that point with the ball in my hand. <laughs> So I didn't want to. I didn't. I didn't want to deal with the father because I knew I knew that was going to be part of it. Like give my son the ball, especially after. You know, I'm like no, but I didn't want any part of it, so I left. So, okay, back to the book. Back to actual business. Why we're here. Um, so I I, I want to take a much broader. I mean, you, you've got a, a focused book, but I want to take this first to a much broader approach in, in light of recent events. Yes. Um, because these these shootings have now kind of spread, I don't want to say into other places, but obviously they have. So help me make people aware of what they need to be thinking when they're out in public places. or Because obviously we'd like to think that there's a plan in place to help protect us, but I think you said it's seven minutes is the average event? Yeah, yeah, seven to eight minutes, yeah. Yeah, so I mean the best plan is to be aware, right, of what's going on around you. Yeah, so it's a great question, and it's a question that I've been asked um, several times uh, over the, the past two days of, of what do you do. And, you know, there's there are certain things that you can do to increase the likelihood that um, you, um, it, you, as you indicated, Jim, right on, um, situational awareness, uh, understanding when you walk into a building where your exits are, um, not always, you know, locked in on your phone. That's just become, you know, we, we used to be a a ten and two, you know, uh, society. When, when we're walking down a road, when we're walking through, um, you know, a, a crowded restaurant or something, we could look and see what was on each side of us. And now we're just looking down at our phones. So it's being aware. So if something does instantly unfold, um, that you can either, you know go for if there's an exit by you or or get behind something you can be concealed whether it be a table or whatever but just that you have those extra seconds where you're not in this focus lock because we know and i wrote about this in my book um on september 11th when the world uh, trade center the first uh, tower was attacked there were people still at their desk for you know three four five minutes after the tower had been struck and they just hadn't realized, they hadn't either actually realized what had happened or um, rationalized what had happened. Um, and so they were still shutting down their CPUs, saving their files instead of going for the exits. And it's that type of mentality. I call it self-similarity or the Taurus, T-O-R-U-S. And we just tend to ignore things. So might, you might hear something that sounds like a shot or something like that or, or people screaming in chaos. And, and it, initially it's like, it's nothing. It's just, you know, and you need to acknowledge right away what is happening, what is happening around you, what can you do, where are your exits, if you can get down and conceal yourself. So, yeah, it's it's those seconds. And what we talk about, the Dayton, Ohio um, shooting, you know, that concluded in a minute. So just think if it takes you a minute to figure out what's going on and to accept what's going on, you've now been jettisoned into chaos. Um, by that time, you know, you could have perished because – you know, the, the shooter is approaching you. 
Now, of course, this isn't a fail-safe. I mean, you're not expecting these type of things to happen. You're not expecting somebody to come into a Walmart or a parking lot and do this. But um, it is that hyper-awareness of your environment that actually we had 100 years ago. I mean, we we were exploring as eight-year-olds a 30-mile radius. You were, fami- you were familiar with you know, the the streams and if something wasn't quite right, right in the woods and what was happening and stuff like that. We, and we've, we've lost that. So um, part of what what people can do is just make sure they're not focus locked and that they are very aware of what's happening around them. So the, the other part of that is you mentioned focus locked and being aware of what's around them. This this is the great equalizer, in my opinion. There, we've also lost, lost track of the people around us. Like how 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 many how many people know their neighbors? Like back in the day, yeah, you knew both sides. You know everybody within however far, almost probably the whole radius that you were talking about. So now yeah. for people to be out and about and not notice things, well, they don't notice things because they don't know what's supposed to be there and what's not supposed to be there. Yeah, yeah, you're you're right, and this comes. Um this really gets into the discussion of reconnaissance. Uh, for example, you know, before I go somewhere, I'll kind of scout it out if I'm going somewhere with my family, you know, as best I can, reconnaissance. Um, or else, you know, look it up online or talk to people who have been there. But actually, like, go to physical locations. Um, but, yeah, it's it's a good point, And it is something that it's, it's a new society that we have to navigate within. We're not familiar with who our neighbors are. We're not f- quite familiar with who the people are around us. We're a very mobile society. And we see this reflected in schools at the start of the school year. Um, you know, you have your core set of students and staff, and three, four months in, you know, you have 25% of your student rosters turned over. You have, you know, staff who've gone on, you know, different medical leaves or, or whatever, and substitute staff come in. So even that isn't a cohesive you know, like student staff body. Um, but yeah, I, I, you're right. It, that's a permanent change. And I think what we have to do is to become aware of it. I, I don't see where we're going to restore that anywhere as a society, you know, that 1940s, 50s of knowing who your neighbors are and, and you know, when you're in a store, knowing a, a lot of people, um, you know, by first name. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's troubling, but it's, it's what it is, but I, I think at some point, I think we'll come back a little bit, but I don't know how. I mean, obviously, we're not going back to the 40s, but I think as people start to try to protect themselves, they'll gear back into more of their local communities and try to start the neighborhood watch, so to speak. Yeah, I I think that's very possible. Um, I also have been studying the social credit score that the Chinese government is going with. and I've, I've watched some videos by Tom Scott, who's a little bit of a futurist, also a data scientist. Um, and it's interesting because the projection down the road is actually that something like the social credit score in China, it, just for those who are listening who aren't aware of what that is, um, China will um, assign each of its citizens a score based upon how much value they add to society. So, for example, I mean, if you're... Um, Helping out your neighbors, you get a higher score. Um, if you're attending good attendance at your job, you'll, you'll get a higher score. And what that translates then is um, you get better priority for transportation, whether it be rail or flying or whatever. So there's incentive to have a higher score, and you can do things to earn a higher score. But they're also seeing people donate or, or contribute more time into like um, nursing homes in community-based activities to increase their social score. And what that is projected to do is to increase these social connections. So it'll be interesting. I'm, I was initially thinking, oh, this is another huge step in Big Brother and government oversight, which it is, but I'm not necessarily convinced um, that this is going to be all bad. And I think as far as like safety, if something like that eventually worked its way into the United States, which – I think is probable, you know, maybe 20 to 30 years, you know, we already have these pseudo systems that kind of work in like Facebook and, um, you know, other, other I, social I media say, systems. The data is already being collected. Yeah. Yeah. The data is, is being collected. And Tom Scott, um, I mean, in his videos are like seven to eight minutes long. He's, it's extraordinary, very concise, um, on this, but so yeah, it, it would be, it would be wonderful. You know, when I was at Wade stadium last week for the baseball game, I was thinking, well, baseball, 
right there. It's community because some of the there's there was one guy there. He had attended every home game since 1950, and this was his last season. He had some medical issues that he could um, make sure he was at all the games. But a lot of people attend these games. They're from the community, so they're they're there for you know 20, 30 home games a year. And then also, what is baseball? Baseball itself is situational awareness. You know, watching how the fielders shift to play a batter, watching the strategy that unfolds in the moment. If a third base coach, you know, is sending somebody home and, and then just, you know, every time there's a ball hit that you're watching and seeing what, what what's unfolding. So baseball is a, a terrific example of building community and then also building situational awareness for adults and for kids. Yeah, don't forget, you just back up when you have the glove. All you back up. <laughs> you back up. No bare handing. Perfect situational awareness, sir. Hey, um, I, I've heard you talk about this before, but it's in, it, my chat room is buzzing with this topic right now, so I'm going to bring it up to you. Uh, I'm going to I'm just going to direct direct the question: Should teachers have guns? No, no. I and I've I didn't write about this in the book because I I wanted to abstain from any position on Second Amendment in the book because there are other people who are more versed in that than I am. But um, I have obtained my own research um, with ballistics experts, with firearms you know, trainers for you know, law enforcement, different departments, big and small across the country. And the question I ask them is, is wh- what level of training would it take to um, – be very accurate in a hallway if you are a teacher, you know, and, and what they said is you'd have to train about four times a year in a very stressful situation, meaning that um, it would have to be almost, you know, like a, a simulation. It's not just going out to the gun range and, and you know, practicing for, for two hours at a stationary target. It had to be to the point, and one ballistics trainer told me, it had to be to the point where, there was so much chaos going on around you, like, you know, loud, loud, you know, sounds and just your, the stress of fast pace that I could actually like clap my hands in your ears and you wouldn't even hear it. But uh, but he said, what happens when, you know, the typical models that of, of when teachers get trained? Now, of course, there are some teachers who are very proficient with firearms, and I guess I'm not talking so much about those folks, but just in, in saying we're going to train, we're going to give teachers are trained, give them firearms. You know, the tendency is, is to, one, shake, and then, you know, you can, if um, most shootings happen within conversational distance. So if you have a kid in the hallway, how do you know that, uh, you know, you're going to hit that kid versus a kid on the left or the right? How do you know that there aren't more shooters? How do you know if you, that's actually the kid with the weapon? You know, when, when Cruz um, did the shooting at Parkland, you know, he he disposed of the gun and walked out with the other kids. I mean, the kids were then pointing to him saying, you know, he's the one that did it. But you could have somebody else, you know, come in with, with a gun or a teacher around a corner and, and a, you know, a student has their hands up in the air and they could be shot. So it's, I, I just don't, you know, it, it reminds me of the Gabby Giffords shooting. Um, you know, it, analyzing the video from that, and, and this has been done, there were, I think at one point, you know, like, 10 or 13 other people had their guns out ready to fire. And a lot of those people, when they interviewed them, they said they weren't sure who fired at Gabby Giffords. So if they pull out their gun and they're looking 40 feet away and somebody else has a gun, they might be, that's the shooter and I'm going to shoot them. So it's, it sounds, uh, sometimes it sounds logical and we tend to see this more in the Southern part of the U S than the Northern part. I did, um, an analysis of bills. There's about 400 safety bills come out a year and more in the southern part of the country for arming teachers. But I just don't see it. And also, I just don't think it's going to make a difference. You know, we look at the STEM shooting. Um, you know, there was an armed guard on premises. Um, I, I, I just don't I, I don't see where that is an effective measure. And we know that in 75% of instances and, and we know this right for for the Dayton Ohio shooter you know the high school teachers are saying he had a hit list and um, he's posting on social media you know b- before this happens if we detect things better and and we have a better reporting system we can prevent these things what there was a grandmother who who in Texas what in the last 24 hours came forward with her grandson 
and uh, and said he's he's planning on a mass shooting, um, and took him to the authorities, and they found what a false ID and a number of of weapons and and whatever at his apartment. So, yeah, we we can spend on reaction or we can spend on prevention. The feds the feds issued sixty five million dollars in new safety grants uh, about three weeks ago. Not a dollar goes toward research and prevention and trying to figure out too why kids typically don't report on the other kids. You know, 75% of the time they know that someone is planning something, but they won't report it. But not, nothing's going toward that. So I just think right now we're, we're spending really out of balance. You know, $3 billion a year. I argue it's three, $5 billion when you count referendums, but let's say it's $3 billion. 90% of those dollars, you know, it's it's on arming teachers it's on guards it's on window films um security cameras is a through-the-roof industry and those are forensic tools i mean they're not preventing anything so yeah i i just well i, I think it's a bad I, approach before we get too far into these fun gadgets that you can buy about for safety i talked to a firearms instructor as well you know he told me he says okay so this, you shoot the shooter bang next thing you hear is the police police breach the door and there's a guy holding a gun in front of them and guess who they shoot the guy holding yep. the gun Right. Right. Yeah, I actually had an officer told, uh, who, who told me that same thing, you know, that if, if he had his, his um, gun out, if he felt he was in the role of a teacher and had his gun out, yeah, same thing. If he was coming into a building, he would, he would immediately neutralize that person. Yeah, so you went from hero to, well, just another victim at that point. Yeah. So, okay, so you, you – <laughs> Now, I've heard you talk about this before, but there has to be something better than this by now because this is, this one's probably a little dated. The uh, the uh, igaloos in the classroom. I'm sure there's something <laughs> better by now. <laughs> wow, you know, um, I don't know if anything is better than the igaloos um, that came out. Um, what in the last kind of two months? It was actually it was fresh before I presented on PBS on July 3rd. So it was a school district in Oklahoma had just purchased seven bulletproof igaloos. Uh, that they put in their classrooms. So you can, first of all, imagine, I mean, it looks like an igloo. You can fit 30 people inside of it. So it takes up a lot of space in a classroom. So they're just, you know, kind of having to rearrange a desk around it. But the superintendent tests this thing by going inside of it, not test it, I think sells it. So um, invites spectators. This reminds me of the videos where they had the two trains, you know, that that would come down the tracks and collide with the, with the steam boilers and be the big dramatic effect. You know, back what a you know hundred years ago, it's kind of like that. So the superintendent um, goes inside of the igloo. It's unloaded on with all kinds of firearms, and then he walks out. And of course, you're going to bite at that point. It's confirmation bias. I mean, everyone is there. They 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 hope it's going to work. I mean, no one wants to to be like, hey, we our superintendent is deceased. We've got to post the position. I mean, it's crazy thinking. But um, so yeah, he sells these things instantly. Everybody watching this is like, we got to have them. Um, but, you know, one thing, uh, I, I'm talking, though, with more companies. I, there are a lot of sensible people out there. There are really thoughtful um, uh, people that have, uh, for example, uh, I was talking with uh, somebody from, um, it's a company, Status Solutions, um, and and they're they're researching how to inter- take all of the existing things that schools have like go into a school and say what is your system for you know announcing threats over a PA your two-way radios all of that and how we can make it work together and one of their their things was you know even if we can just monitor when doors are open when a door is propped open and after like 5 minutes an alarm go you know like a light goes on says hey the store's been open for 5 minutes you know someone gets an alert and then they go and check it things like that make a big difference i mean just that type of security in a building but yeah you're you're right i mean when we get to gadgets it's amazing and i think the latest one to come out is well this one's been out but it's really gaining momentum there's two one is it's called a spot shotter and i'm just going to say that generically i think it's actually a, a uh, copy write it term but where it can i it, it it is audio so it detects if there's been a shot in a school and then instantly can activate and lock down all of the doors which in theory might make sense but what if your kids are out in a hallway and what if like it's them it locks out the responders 
Yeah, I was going to say, uh, you just locked him in. And if, what if you just <laughs> locked your shooter in? And, and I mean, all of these things, so it, it's far from from perfect. And also, that's assuming that there's one shooter, you know, and your shooter is also going to be moving. So you have a shot in one hallway, and then suddenly you have a shot in the next hallway, and these events, you know, conclude very rapidly. So and the other one is sad. I mean, it's it's the back-to-school backpacks, and now the bulletproof backpacks are starting to go mainstream. You know, you used to get them, you know, just like two years ago. If you wanted one, you had to go to typically like a firearms dealer, and they started to carry those along with the, with the you know, ammunition and guns and things like that. That's where you're buying these. You're not getting them at Walmart and Target. But now they're making their way, you know, pretty much all over Amazon, you know, into some, you know, more retail-type stores. So, And those are completely ineffective, right? Because, first of all, the backpack is probably going to be in the hallway, and the reality is, you know, to think that you're going to grab a backpack and hold it up to defend yourself, it's just, it's well, not going to happen. Si- there's a size problem there, David. Yeah. You got your backpack, right? I'm going to hold my notebook up in front of my face. Your backpack is twice the size of your notebook, right? Right. Give or take. Right. Well, I've still got a nice trunk shot even though i got my face covered or vice versa. <laughs> right. Yeah. And we've never <laughs> seen that be effective. Um, but... Again, it, it's it's what's being marketed, and and Jim, the thing is with marketing, nothing is tested. Nothing has to legally be tested. Um, the feds do not oversee school safety. People think they do, but they don't. It's the states, and forty three out of fifty states do, um, but there are seven states that don't, including Pennsylvania and Hawaii. So you know, well, hey, I mean, Hawaii, Pennsylvania, <laughs> and Hawaii are a good state. Well, Hawaii is a good state well, for us because it worked. That's how we all got connected in Pennsylvania. Well, I'm not right. surprised about school po- lack of school policy. But anyways, that's a whole other conversation. But yeah, yes. <laughs> you know, so so what happens is is these vendors come up with with these crazy ideas, you know, for stuff, and they never have to test them and and put them through clinical, you know, trials and and whatever. You know, we think of how long it takes a drug to to come to market. You can think of an idea for a safety app or a special door jam or something like that, and you know, two months later you can be out selling the thing, and it's perfectly legal to do it. So I, I've kind of abused your. I, I was supposed to have you on to talk about the book, and we're halfway through, and we haven't got there. And I have some other off-the-beat questions, so why don't you give me the uh, hard sell of the book while we have a minute here before I get into this other stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America is the most honest book about these $3 billion school safety industrial complex. Uh, I spent three years researching it, had 10 member checks, uh, professionals in the field who read through it. I had three proofs, uh, peer reviewers go through it, and I really dug deep. I worked with the city of New York in getting information uh, for it, um, and it, it's it's going to blow your mind. It's like – it's nothing – uh, there's nothing similar to it in school safety or personal safety. And that's what people have told me who have already obtained their books. I said, this is this is just completely spinning me 180 in a direction, a perspective I've never thought of. You know, concepts like simulated annealing, really deep dives into chaos theory, transference dynamic. These things sound really wacky and out there, but I give all descriptions on what these terms mean, um, how they happen in your everyday life. And and the first chapter, how thinking about a bagel can get you through the worst day of your life, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and and I, I, I've read it twofold as for as just a general public awareness book, and then as a parent that has kids going in school settings. So I read it from both perspective and both measured out just as well. So if you don't have a kid in school, but if you do have a kid in school, you need to at least take a look at this and go. Yeah, we need to look at this because safety, your kid's safety is the most important thing you can do, and you're trusting the district to keep them safe. But as David likes to point out, bullards out front look nice, but they don't necessarily have any impact. <laughs> well, unless you hit one, and then <laughs> right. you've impacted it. <laughs> Absolutely. And the 9-11 stuff is just its fascinating to, to piece back together because I was unaware until you, you mentioned it of that whole situation that day. Yeah, originally the book had a working title of Lessons of Lower Manhattan, and, and I was going to use it. Um, I was going to talk about 9-11 and really the rescue 500,000 people in nine hours from Lower Manhattan and how that happened. And then 
break it down into pieces and, and talk about the parallels in schools, like what this would look like in a school if you had to evacuate on the fly, like how your system would develop, how your reunification site would develop and all of that. And I kind of did that somewhat, but I, but, um, the book did evolve beyond that. So, um, I kept a lot of the New York um, 9-11 stuff in there because it's very relevant in helping people understand actually just safety in general and school safety. And, and New York was wonderful to work with, by the way. Their Department of Planning, they were terrific. I was assigned one person. They actually called me one night. I was at the grocery store with my family shopping. It was 8 o'clock here, so it's 9 o'clock out in New York. One, and this person calls me and said, I found the image that you're looking for. And here's the study that it was in, and, and it's in your inbox right now. And I'm like, this is amazing. Thank you so much. So Germantown Runner has a question for you. I'm sure you're familiar with that name because yes. you listen to the show often. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, he watched an interview of a fe- uh, former FBI ballistics trainer in DHC who said, in active shooter situations, you should, air quotes, always run and rarely shelter in place. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I that's that's not what I've heard. You know, it, it, I I should say. Um, but it goes back every, to that situational awareness because if I mean if you're in a school, you could run right into them. Right. I mean, and if somebody, for example, if you're on a playground and there is a dumpster and you can get behind it, it's probably your best bet versus running off. You know, where you're unexposed or where you're exposed because you know it's it's line of sight and the it's probable that the shooter isn't going to go all the way around dumpsters and everything looking for people. The shooter's going to take what's in their line of sight. And we also know that in schools. You know, once people get behind locked doors, the shooter typically doesn't spend time trying to shoot through doors in schools. They'll If they can't get through it, they'll go to the next one. If they can't get through it, they'll go to the next one. Because they, they also know they only have so much time before they're confronted. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it... It, it, it depends on the context. I mean, if you if you absolutely can't shelter in place, if you can't conceal, um, yeah, then to distance yourself um, and kind of zigzag out, you know, that's 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 actually military training. So I don't know if Germantown, you know, runner has has some background in that, but you know, that's that's part of um, a lot of folks I work with are are either active military or have been in the military. So they'll bring that up to me, you know, running in a zigzag pattern if we have to get, get away from something. Maybe for you, Dave, but I'm not that great of runner. So I'm just going for it. I used to be, I'm not anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> I, if you watch a video of me going out to the mound, gimping out there. Yeah. I'm <laughs> sheltering in place. That's me. I'm behind the bleachers. So I, I've got two different things here. I, I, I've got a, a positive thing and a thing that's going to make us get into a deep discussion. So we'll go with the positive thing first here. Now, I don't know. Have I have I sent you these screenshots of um, what free words for my house? No, uh, I don't think so. Okay. Well, I'll have to, oh, we'll talk about it after the show because obviously I don't want to give my what free words out. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, my address is already on the Internet, people. You can probably find it. Quick Google search. But anyways, not encouraging that. But, I mean, it's just fact of life anymore. But tell me, let's talk about what free words for a minute, because I heard you talking about it on your show months ago. So yeah. I uh, downloaded it when I got home because I was driving, and I'm like, oh, cool. And then I started playing with it more and more. But give give my listeners out there what, what the general description of it is. Sure. So, so you're talking about uh, Giles Rise uh, Jones. I had on my show, and he is a chief marketing officer for the company What Three Words out of London. And what three words has been around, um, you know, for about five years. It was a company actually that started because um, musicians were having trouble with they come up to a venue like, hey, I'm at I'm at Yankee Stadium, um, and you know, here's the address. But where am I supposed to be with all of the the drums and amplifiers and all of that? So what three words took the entire surface of the world and uh, mapped it into three meter by three meter grids. So basically, like a 81 you know square foot. Uh, you know, grid and um, the entire the entire world, and it's in the multiple languages. It never changes. So, like where I'm at right now, um, this has a three word address. And if this house is you know torn down in 20 years and something else is put here, this will still be the same three word address. Now, what they've done though with this, just in the last few years, the Netherlands, Sweden, um, the United Nations, they use this for geospatial uh, mapping. So everything has a three word address. So instead of saying I'm at 204 Second Street, it would be you're at Banana, um, Lighthouse, and Sunny. 
okay? Banana, Lighthouse, Sunny. And that's there's no other three-word address with that. And the system has fail-safes built in, so if you're a little bit off, it will it will register your coordinates and say, here's where I think you know you, you want to be. But um, Mercedes-Benz has this right now as their mapping system in their cars. Ford Motor Company will have this next year. So it's going to be integrated into Garmin. In London right now, they're in the process of getting away from street addresses that are numerical and replacing them with three-word addresses. So this technology actually – this is this is the future. I mean, so I talk about it from a school safety perspective because it makes a lot of sense. One, we can take a campus and we know exactly where everybody is on this campus per these three meter squares. Because um, right now we have it about as precise as um, windows that and doors that have numbers on them, but we don't know what happens inside a building if someone has, you know, can can have their app and, and indicate exactly where they're at. You can know that if the whole building, you know, you've got your your what three words for it. And it's really big for if you're evacuating because people will spend a lot of time in school safety in their school safety, three ring binders of saying our evacuation site is the church two blocks away. Like that's where we're going if we have to evacuate. But the reality is um, there was a shooting outside of Madison, Wisconsin in Middleton, which is like two, three miles away. They shut down the entire campus. They locked it down um, in this past year. And for people to to have an evacuation site from where this affected area was, it was like five miles away. So I tell people, too, like, you never know where you're going to evacuate to. It's part of working the problem. It's Apollo 13. It's in the moment. So what three words also will say, here, the police have said we're going to evacuate to this site five miles away. And you can actually give, like, the entrance to that site or the driveway. And you can have police out there making sure they're checking with parents. Because what, what happens is... Something something goes down at a school or you know workplace or whatever, and people try to get to that location, and and then they clog the roadways, and you can't get your assets through, such as your fire, police, EMS. Um, it slows everything down. So you know we talk about too, you know, trying to save lives. If someone is is shot, and of course bleeding out is a big concern, we have to have our first responders be able to get there. That was a problem with Columbine. It was a problem with Sandy Hook in 2012. Um, it was also a problem with with Parkland. So we're not learning. Like these things still happen. Parents still rush the scene, and we need to have better options. What three words is really? It's a phenomenal software system. Um, I'm I'm excited about it because I was I was a firefighter years ago, and I was really good at a lot of things. And I was really bad at one thing, and what I was really bad at was reading the plat book. And a plat book is basically a map. It cuts everything down into longitude and latitude and if it was somewhere in a country i could never figure out where the fire was i just wasn't good at that and now you know the technology has taken us beyond that but i I couldn't do that that wasn't i didn't have that ability and the great thing for me is because oh good grief it's been a couple years ago three almost four years ago i had um ambassador arthur lank on my program okay and he he is yeah from israel and well he actually is from new jersey but he was from in Israel, and um, he was telling me about Waze, this, yes. new, this new app that they were developing over there. And I went, "Oh, Waze!" So I downloaded that, and then I was playing with what free words, and that you can actually go to a what free words and Waze. And I went, "Yes, this is great." <laughs> yeah. So anyone as a practical application, I mean, imagine you're out in a parking lot or, or, or a tailgating, you know, where yeah. there could be. You know, forty, fifty thousand people, and you can actually give your exact coordinates. You know, through what three words, and and someone else will know where you're at, and they'll be able to identify as they're going walking towards you. Also, as it's pinging up to satellite, basically like a GPS of okay, you're in front of me by like you know fifty feet, and so yeah. it's it's really great. Yeah, imagine how handy that would have been back in the day when I was parking who knows where and trying to remember yeah. where I parked at <laughs> eleven o'clock at night in the dark, walking around the. Um, Streets of Pittsburgh. Yep. <laughs> I've been there. It is amazing. But that this is all just, you know, it's just amazing how. But I think that well, you're telling me that uh, they're adapting it. I, I think it's just everybody needs to be aware of it because I think before long, we're going to have not much. We're not going to have a lot of choice. It's just going to be on our doorstep and we need to be aware of what's going on. Yeah. You know, and, and the one cool thing the child shared, they did a study, so they gave a courier, a bike courier, two bike couriers. Um, they had to deliver 10 packages, and one only could use what three words, and another had to use a traditional map. And the what three words courier not only got done faster, but his biometrics 
were better, meaning like he wasn't getting stressed out. Um, he wasn't, his heart rate wasn't going up, wasn't being, and he didn't report as frustrated. So again, we're going to see these things and think about busing, you know, also for students. And, and just as we monitor, um, you know, where students are going on field trips and playgrounds, there, there's a lot of good things that will come out of what three words. No, Dave, our children aren't going on field trips. They're doing virtual reality. Oh, wait, that's another. <laughs> You'll read about that in the book if you live outside of Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, there's a lot of things Cleveland's known for. That's not the worst of them. Oh. <laughs> so I, I I do have one more safety. Well, this is kind of a, this isn't a school safety thing. This is just a practical safety thing that I'm surprised we haven't talked about yet. Truthfully, okay. You ready to invade Area 51? <laughs> wow. Yes, well, no, maybe so. Well, well, you know what? It's it's something because, you know, I I think we know some of the same people who really are are, you know, very convinced that there there's something very big going on, you know, with with this with this movement. Um and it's ironic. Last night I was watching an old Bob Lazar, you know, interview about his time that he alleges that he worked on, you know, UFOs at Area 51. So, um yeah, I, I Am I ready? Uh, no, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Uh, but it's fascinating for, for me to, you know, to watch this and, and to think about this um, because I think we're in a geopolitical climate. And, you know, if you had the right right movement, you know, pushing that envelope with government, I think people are more willing to do that now than ever before. I mean, I, what's your thought on it? I, I, a, it's not a viable option because they will exercise ammunition towards you. Yeah, let's yeah, be completely. honest. I mean, <laughs> if if need be, um, but I think I think it, you know, this UFO disclosure has been building steam for a couple of years now. Everybody's been, you know, and then this kind of insane idea just kind of sparked everything. And that's not they're not connected, but they are connected because people are, I think, open more open to this now. Because this would have yeah. happened like ten years ago. People would have right. been like, "Why do we care about it? No, no aliens, no space, no, nope, we're, nope, no part of it." But now it's like, oh yeah, aliens. Let's go find them because we know they're real. Like you know, let's let's actually just yeah, we're done with it. Just prove it out. Yeah, and you know what, I Jim, I, I think you're right on with that because actually, um, if there was uh, you know a Sentinel you know news release that came out and or a government release saying, yeah, I mean we uh, we uh, we have authentic air yeah, space you know vehicles and and whatever, I I honestly think people would handle that pretty well because for <laughs> you know the whole thought was you know what you know for 20 30 years ago anything coming out like that would destroy religion and and would destroy the fabric of you know all of society and economies would collapse and and just but i don't know i mean honestly if i heard it i'd be intrigued i would want to learn more about it i'd take a scientific approach to it it kind of you know i think ancient aliens has prepped us for it right but on, yeah. on history channel but but um I, it wouldn't be something that would cause me not to sleep at night and to just feel like my entire entire world's collapsed. I, I I wouldn't have that reaction at all. I'd be I'd be really curious. I'd want to know what others knew, um, and I just don't think it would be this destabilizing force that would ripple across the world that everyone was terrified such disclosure would have thirty years ago. Kind of when Lazar came out. And I think we think about this, like I've talked to Jim Fitzgerald about this, and the FBI is preparing for communicating with anything, human or not, that doesn't speak English or some known language. You've got to be, they're always preparing for that. And then the Pope came out and said he'd baptize them. So, I mean, we're all <laughs> we're all kind of lining up here that, yes, we, we're all getting ready, and right. sure enough, religion will still take care of this. So we're, we got this, we're getting bases covered here. <laughs> Right, and what are the what, how, what's the general alien stance on school safety? You know, so wh- where does that lie? But yeah, I, but I, no, it's <laughs> they don't have boards in front of their schools. I'm, I can assure you, <laughs> they probably brought them here in spaceships years ago. So yeah, <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it, it's really fascinating. I'm glad you brought that up because um, I I I can't get enough of you know. Well, first of all, George Norrie in, in your show. Um, it, you know, pique my curiosity with that and, and just going back to that original, you know, in-depth, I think it was with George Knapp, the Bar- Bob Lazar interview, yeah. which was like an hour and 20 minutes long. And, and yeah, like I, 
I honestly, I, I would just want to know about it. I, I would, I would want to know as much that the scientific community had gathered about it, what it might mean for us. Was there anything that actually developed, you know, like engineering on, you know, our nuclear program or solar or, oh, come you on. know, we, we all know, microgen- I, we all know uh, cell phones had something to do with it. Well, it's, it seems, I mean, it seems completely uh, unimaginable. I, I just bought, I bought a hundred year old um, candlestick phone at an antique shop last week when I was a week ago today. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm looking at my cell phone a hundred years later and I'm like, how did we make this jump? And how did we even make the jump from 19, you know, 69 and, and the, the, you know, a moon program to where we're at now. It just seems like it's way too fast of a pace to not have made that without assistance, you know, or or having some access to some something that you could reverse engineer. It seems pretty uh, unimaginable to me. I just, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's possible, but there's questions for sure. Okay, so yeah, the, the, the aliens would not have made Windows 8.1. Would no. not have done it. <laughs> Wouldn't have done it. No, that's. No, well, no Windows 10 makes me mad tonight, so I don't even know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing better than open a screen that you know is supposed, you know, <laughs> opens up for months in a row, right on point, right? right? And then you open it up and you go, what are all those little red boxes for? Oh, yeah. And then you go, oh, no. <laughs> so, Germantown Runner as, as, well, he's asked a bunch of questions, but I'm going to pull this one because this is probably the, the best one of the bunch. Uh, some commercial air pilots are now armed. There just aren't enough air marshals. So why not arm principals and some teachers since there aren't enough private public guards to guard to staff every school in America? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. So we know that we're spending $3 billion a year on school safety. So I, I think first we have to look, if that's the approach we're, we're going to entertain, then we need to say, okay, but we're not going to spend the money then on bollards and surveillance cameras and all of this stuff. We're going to put it into um, student relations officers, or we are going to make it available if there is, um, you know, certain staff in school, whether it be staff who have had firearms, previous firearms experience in the military, whatever, people who are already prone to stressful environments of using firearms. So I think one is it's just a resource allocation that we'd have to consider. I don't think we need to add anything. We need to reallocate. Um, but yeah, I guess, I mean, my dad was a principal for 38 years. I was a school administrator. Also like school, ad, you know, administrators aren't in the building all the time either. I mean, probably a lot of the time you're either at district office or else you're out at regional meetings or things like that. So you'd have to also, um, you know, have that person in that facility. You know, s- school districts will have one police liaison, but I think, what is this, Florida? But then that police liaison might be across 10 different buildings. So the odds that the shooting would happen when the liaison's in the building. So, yeah, I, it's a valid argument. It's I'm I'm a little bit on the side of saying I just don't, I just don't see where people are going to keep up the fidelity of training that if something did happen in a shooting event that they wouldn't bring more chaos to it, you know, shoot in innocent students or themselves end up being victims. But, but there are people who make solid arguments and school boards on the other side. And if that's where you, you choose to go, then, um, you know, I'm, I'm in support of people that make decisions that fit, that they feel fit their context. I'm not telling them they're wrong on that, but I'm just, that's not where I typically center my safety work. Yeah. And, uh, Brian Bowden asked the question, should every school have a police station? And then, But why are we limiting it to schools? Because as we've seen, these events have started to evolve to right. other places. So yeah, so can, we, so can we protect all, like, malls, right. retail stores, festivals? Yep. I mean, you probably have a better list than I just read, read off. I mean. Well, no. I mean, I think, I think you, just, you just touched on, you know, if we harden one – location there are other soft locations so even if even a school i mean think of playgrounds elementary kids in friday night lights you know the high schools that pack four or five thousand people into stadiums but then typically somewhere you know in that perimeter there's just a chain link fence and someone at night could could be there with a weapon so i at what point do we say everything is going to have a you know heavy police presence um and also, what difference is it really going to make? 
for example, you know, the date date in Ohio when it's one minute that it took for that to happen and police were on the scene and, and neutralized, you know, killed the suspect. But um, well, that's the prime example of all of us, though. Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, they were there. It took a minute and they still I mean, you can't react. I mean, I guess there's seconds there that we things could be better. But in theory, I mean, that's as close to the perfect scenario for this as you're going to get. Yeah, it, it really is. Um, so that's where I go back and I say the thing is we, we do know, though, we're not investing in prevention. We're not invention, inventing – in prevention as far as um, threat reporting systems, teaching uh, kids and adults how to identify threats, how to report them, um, all the leakage stuff going out. And part of it is we, we're in a, a tricky place in society. And I was talking to somebody earlier tonight, uh, Gretchen Altman. She's an attorney, and she wrote a book about you know when kids have threatening um, essays that they write. What's the role of the teacher to come forward and say, you know, this is this is dark writing that seems to express harm? And what's the protection of the student saying, hey, it's my First Amendment right to, you know, say that I don't like people. And, you know, wh- where does that line get crossed? And then uh, um, what was it with the Aurora, Colorado shooting? His um, therapist was saying, you know, it, it's it was hard because he didn't seem like someone that was going to kill people. But then. I did have concerns. So if you're a therapist and you report someone and they, they, you know, do you, do you potentially ruin their, their life and their career because now they're tagged as being potentially violent? That's the whole thing with this profiling, you know, that's starting to go and get some momentum. You know, we can profile people out. Well, there's a lot of people who no one ever anticipated they would be shooters. Um, Samuel Hangel in Marinette, Wisconsin, you know, was a scout and a model you know, friendly, outgoing middle school student who brought a duffel bag of handguns to school, you know, about five years ago. So I I think it's we're going to have to face the fact that we can't profile out for everything. But we also have to face the fact that if we want to make some ground on this, we've got to research it. We've got to understand why people aren't reporting. Is it the the systems don't match them or is it a code of silence? You know, snitches end up in ditches. What's really going on? And nobody's doing it. Nobody's doing that part. I think the biggest problem is, David, how, like, okay, say, I think David's a threat to harm himself or others, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, that's great. We just admitted that. Now what? Who do I call? What do I do? Right. As an adult. Yeah, I mean, it, in the school right. situation, the school scenario is a little different. You, there's, av- well, potentially avenues for reporting it in the school. But I, I think those are broken, too. But that's a whole different conversation. No, you're right. You're right. Yeah. And, and what was it with, with the, the Las Vegas shooter? You know, people had concerns. I mean, people who were close to him said, yeah, I mean, the guy's buying a lot of guns, but he's also a millionaire. He's going in sweatpants and flippers, you know, to the casino and dropping $500,000. But, you know, that was just his lifestyle. Well, so people are is like, is that a gambling addiction or is that a serious problem? Well, right, right. So – it is it is really hard, and that's where I think we have to almost step up with some immunity that comes forward if if you do report someone that they don't come back and civilly sue you and say, hey, you, you've just done this, and now it's kind of that liar's dividend I, I talked about on a podcast. If, if, you, if you accuse someone, you bring up the doubt. So, I mean, yeah, if, if you accuse somebody um, and you genuinely have, have risk – that or thought that they're going to bring risk of harm to self or others you need to have some immunity and i think people are reluctant they're hesitant because they don't want it to blow back at them saying hey you made this threat about my son or about my coworker right here and everything's fine and now his whole family is like you know abandoning him and his wife is divorcing him and the family you know i mean all of these things so i, I think there's 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 reasons why people are very hesitant to um and again it's self-similarity it's like ah this person's a little bit out there, but what are the odds really that they're going to shoot out of their self-similarity into chaos where they're going to come in and attack? You know, so it's David, probably not going to happen. So 30 seconds here, David, because we're almost out of time. Um, where can people where, – where's where's the podcast and all your stuff? Yeah, everything is at safetyphd.com, safetyphd.com. I guess I'll have to tell David about the nickels off air. There's yeah, Just don't listen to people on YouTube. That's the bottom okay. line. And that's where I'll tell David more of it here in a minute. But Okay. <laughs> just don't listen to people on YouTube. And I'll talk to you in about 30 seconds. Everybody else, we'll talk to you next week. All right. Thank you so much, Jim. The views and opinions expressed on the Mallard Report are those of the host and participants. 
past shows, social media links, and so much more. Visit Mallard.com, M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D.com. And thanks for listening. So fill that time, fill that time, because my time, my clock was off, and... Pit Pass Moto, sponsored by Moto America, is the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. From candid interviews with the top names in racing to providing insights into the trends and trendsetters driving the motorcycle industry, we have you covered. New episodes are available every Thursday at pitpassmoto.com and on your favorite podcast app. Ride on!